Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuha. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, August 16th, 2020. Crap, it's still 2020. Oh, come on. Things are looking up. Let's, let's get over up. this. And, you come know, on. We had a nice cool day today. Big break in the weather. A little rainy, perhaps. <laughs> rainy, but I actually went out for a bike ride yeah. in the semi-rain. And? Because I was so anxious. Yeah. To have a ride in a non 90 degree day. How was it? And it was delightful. It was raining? I didn't know it was raining during the Well, it was ride. misting oh. part of the time. Um, but, uh, and no other bikes were on the road. Oh, really? To be honest. I did see a few tubers in the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a little, little rain well, didn't stop Well, we saw a ton of them yesterday. Them. A ton yeah. of them yesterday. A ton of them. So, Warm uh, and sunny yesterday. It made me feel like maybe fall will come. And I'm excited about that. Okay. All right. So um, we found a new show, which, uh, you know, is a little bit controversial, it turns out. But uh, it's surprisingly interesting. It's called Indian Matchmaking. Indian Matchmaking. And in two sentences, although you can explain it in more depth, perhaps, Tamsin, it's about uh, young people who are of Indian descent um, looking to find mates and they put their uh, fortunes, uh, their futures into the hands of a woman named Sima Taparia, the matchmaker, uh, who is the centerpiece of the show. And she takes their information and goes to her database and figures out likely matches. And the show is about how they fare. So it's offline dating. Online dating. Offline, online. Well, they, no, they're using a person instead of a, a computer. Yeah. But doing the same thing. Exactly right. Although I, I'd like to think that uh, uh, Ms. Taparia, Ms. Taparia has a computer at her disposal. She's got a lot of information to keep track of. She probably does. Yeah. She probably does. But yes, they're using her, which means they're using judgment uh, besides just using uh, computer algorithms. And um, it is surprisingly interesting. I guess it's surprisingly well made because it's a reality television show and we all kind of repel that notion. Uh, but um, it's made by a woman named Smriti Mandiri, who's a documentary filmmaker. Uh, apparently, has been nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, it's very well put together. It's kind of interesting, um, and in in a uh, kind of an intriguing way. It's not as if it's uh, got some you know too much information. It's not as if there's embarrassing details or anything like that. You're drawn into the um, situation of the various people who are looking for mates and what they aspire and what they deserve. And uh, I think you are drawn in. Aren't you drawn in to it? Yeah, I thought it was fine. Okay. Well, <laughs> I think, I don't know why, but I think you were much I, more intrigued No, it wasn't that I was more intrigued. It was that I was a surprise I was intrigued at all. And uh, I found it very watchable and I found it interesting. Um, and the characters came across, you know, they're... You're sympathetic to them. They're very young people. They don't have that much experience. You're not sympathetic to all of them. No, you're not sympathetic to all of them. They're one or no. two. You're clearly not. And and you shouldn't be. You know that would. Uh, I think that would be boring. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know it does reveal people's personalities, and uh, you know it was a little bit surprising in terms of what some people are looking for right. and what works and doesn't work. And also... Pippi- and it's, it's kind of cute. I mean, it's very old-fashioned, uh, This this using this woman yeah. to solve the problem. In fact, people seem to refer to her as auntie. Yeah. 
Um, so it's but, really... But she's not really their aunt. That's, no, just, no. that's just the way yeah, they do it. Just a... Well, the, here, here's what's, what turns out to be controversial, and I didn't realize this. There was a piece in the last week's New York Times in the Sunday section, which is all op-ed type pieces, by a woman named Sanjina Sathyan, who's a novelist. Uh, an article called We Need to Talk About Indian Matchmaking, and she meant the show. She said the Netflix show was quite controversial. And she describes her experience when five years ago... Uh, she met with a matchmaker uh, as part of a report on what she describes as India's $50 billion marriage industrial complex. Apparently, this is a big deal because uh, a lot of matchmaking is done in India and money changes hands. Whether $50 billion or not, I can't say. But she came in highly skeptical, thinking, well, this is all a racket. Well, because we're all familiar with the concept of, you know, arranged marriages. Right, right, right. And, uh, you know, that seems horrific. It does. But these are not arranged marriages. These are more like online dating. And yeah. and and what she uh, found was that it was somewhat uh, scientific in its process. The first thing the matchmaker that she was dealing with gave her was long gave her gave her was this long questionnaire, lowly detailed questions uh, that she thought were highly pertinent uh, and really the kind of information you might really want if you were dealing with an excellent online matchmaking service, if you will. Uh, and she said, well, maybe there is something to it. Um, and she watches the show and she finds herself drawn in the same way that, that at least I'm drawn in here and feels it's kind of legitimate that the matchmaker is, is doing her best. These are people who have a lot to growing up to do as far in, as in addition to everything else going on in their lives in terms of finding it's, a mate. Yeah, some of them have, uh, I don't know, um, kind of... Uh, impossible expectations, right. shall we say. Yeah, which is not a surprise. But what she finds, what the controversy she identifies is, is that the Indian matchmaking is reputed to hark back to some very unattractive things about Indian culture. And uh, what are those things? Those things are the caste system, the idea that people will only be aligned with others of their own caste, the idea that women are, are not a powerful presence or supposed to be secondary uh, they're not supposed to be ambitious, and they should let men take the lead, among other traditional uh, values. And uh, a lot of people criticize the matchmaking generally, and the matchmaking that goes on the show is, is scrutinized from the perspective of, is it just pushing these kind of stereotypical approaches? And she says, sure enough, if you watch the show a particular way, there is there are code words for what they might call the caste system. In other words, uh, what, is, what does the family do? Where do they come from? What region do they come from? What profession were they in? And she says these are often the words that people associate with uh, continuing the caste system, keeping people within their own lines. Um, or, you know, you might not call the caste system. You might just say the kind of thing you might normally be concerned about. She doesn't know. But, uh, well, doesn't she come out on the side of it turns out that people with a similar background often get along better. Well, that's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, I think she does come out come out that way. Uh, and, and, and the same thing similarly about the idea of women being forward and being uh, taking a stronger Not view. Not being submissive. Not being submissive. And she said the same kind of thing. There's a balancing act going on there because these people are coming to the matchmaker because they do recognize the value as the writer uh, in the Times recognizes the value of... Uh, keeping uh, aligned with the culture of uh, trying to stay true to one's roots and respecting their elders, that there is some value there. And you're trying to balance the notion of aligning with the culture on the one hand 
and identifying with perhaps more modern roles going forward. Uh, how do you balance those two? And these people are working through those issues in the real, a real way. And she thinks that's totally legitimate. I mean, let me just read a few sentences from you because she puts a lot better than I'm putting it. Um, you know, speaking, speaking specifically about the gender imbalance issue and open-mindedness. Um, uh, well, to your point, number one, we should be able to hold multiple truths about the matchmaking subjects. Understanding why someone might want a partner who speaks the same language, eats the same comfort food, shares the same religious beliefs, while also seeing how such worldviews are connected to a hierarchical and discriminatory system. It's easy to applaud stories about rejecting old customs in favor of modern ideals. It's harder yet worthwhile to sit with the subtler tension between tradition and modernity. This is what the great marriage plots have always considered, a mannered society and how to live within it. So uh, I think that's well put. Anyway, I find it a pretty interesting show. Um, so Indian matchmaking. matchmaking. Yes. Uh, Indian matchmaking. So the NBA, let me get to that because that is surprisingly uh, important this week and I'll get to why in a moment. Um, first of all, there was an article in the, in the New York Times about um, the playoff system that has uh, arrived really before the playoff system. In other words, a whole bunch of teams went down there to the so-called bubble in Orlando right. and two-thirds of them were pretty much guaranteed spots in the playoffs and seven or eight teams were not. Uh, and they were playing among each other to see who would emerge from that group to join the playoffs that really officially start uh, in the next few days. And that set up an interesting competition. And it was kind of uh, what contributed to it is what they did was there are three hotels down there that were likely destinations uh, within the Orlando bubble. And uh, the best is the um, something called the Grand Destino, which is new. The second, the Grand Floridian. These are all Disney hotels. Well, the third one, the one that's not as nice, is called the Yacht Club Resort, which is probably okay. But they took all the lesser teams and they put them in that in that hotel. In other words, they they so they had a cast system. They had going? a cast system going in terms of what hotel you were in. <laughs> and on top of that, all these teams in the same hotel together, who were seeing each other in the elevator, or seeing each other for meals, and so on, they were all pitted against each other to see which of those seven or eight teams would emerge and make it. To the playoffs. So they were seeing their opponents every single day for two weeks, apart from everything else, in the lesser hotel, thinking about what the nicer hotels are. So it was a strange experiment. Uh, ultimately, uh, what happened was that the, um, the Phoenix team that's been getting a lot of attention was not good during the season, coached by a guy named Monty Williams, went 8-0, 8-0 at the Yacht Club. Uh, and you might have thought enough to get into the playoffs. It was not because they were so far behind to begin with. The team that got in from that group was the Portland team, the Portland Trailblazers, where they were led by Damian Lillard, who was just fantastic. Uh, I, I saw him in one game against the Nets, scored over 40 points, and he was named the MVP of this pre-playoff uh, period. Um, but what's uh, the big news that came out just this weekend is this. In order to wait, make, wait a minute, wait what? a minute, wait, wait, wait. That's all you're doing with the hotel thing? That's what, what, it's just a little mean that they put these guys in the hotel. Well, I, you're not going to give me any data about, uh, you know, X many more, you know, no more virus at the uh, things at the, were scored no. by the guys in the crummy hotel than in the good hotel. No, no, no. That's it. You just well, want can, everybody to know which teams were in the crummy hotel. Just to follow through, I didn't list the teams, but I certainly can. But just to follow through, by virtue of its prevailing, Portland got moved into a nicer hotel. 
There is no one in the Yacht Club Resort right Without now. Without the incentive. And, and you know who's going to go to the Yacht Club Resort? Uh, the, quote, families, uh, wives slash girlfriends of the NBA players who have now gotten to the next level of the playoffs in the nicer hotel so that they will be in the bubble and available for, what shall we say, conjugal visits, if that's what it takes, to uh, with the players over the next And you the think they'll be months. shunned because they're in the crummy hotel? No, they won't. I think they'll be welcomed with open arms. Uh, so. And what do they have to do to move up their hotel status? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I thought yeah. you were going to talk basketball. I, I, here, let really, me get to the story. You're really just talking about travel accommodations. <laughs> Can All I get right. to the real thing here? Yeah. This is the thing. This is the stunner, okay? And mm-hmm. uh, when the NBA was preparing for its bubble, uh, they realized that uh, they would have to do a lot of regular testing. And uh, for the virus, for the virus, so they're trying every day they test okay. for the virus. Everybody gets tested every day for the virus. Well, this is a challenge, like the president, like the president, yes, like the president. So, this is a challenge because, um, because the, the testing if takes you're forever. like normal people, right, right? All right, it takes eight to ten days, right. maybe more, right, to get your results back right. 22 you, days. Yes, how's that going to help? <laughs> right, it's a so you got to be president. So, they came, they're not president, so they actually reached out. To scientists, when they saw the opportunity to, for the NBA to take the initiative to try to develop a better test because they needed it. That's so funny. It's so <laughs> funny to imagine these guys saying, the, thinking, all right, we'll we take gotta, care of this. We'll invent yeah, a new test. We got we to gotta find out what's going on. Right. We got to find out, uh, right. you know, what's the best test. And right. then they say, well, this is the best, but, you know, it still takes a while. And they say, well... Can't we do better? Right. So it is crazy. But here's what's I think even crazy. It's very American, it, it's don't cr- you? It is. It's very, you know, take the bull by the horns right. and solve this problem. And you want to know what's even crazier? They did. So what happens? You're shaking your head. No, 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 no. I'm shaking my head because, you know, what is it? It's good old American capitalism. It's, 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 it's not the government. The government couldn't do this. It's, right? you know it is. It's, it's uh, you know, the desire... To make money. Yeah. Right. Well, it's sports imitating life is one way to put it. But yes. Uh, so what happens is, is this. Let me give you the details. The payoff here. So in April, they, the, the folks, some folks at some level of the NBA read a paper because they're monitoring medical journals, which says that some experiments were done at Yale, which showed that the virus is potentially detectable uh, from saliva. Uh, this is apart from doing the normal uh, swab testing. The nose thing. The nose thing, which right. is what takes forever. Okay? So fine. Saliva. But it's but it's a different level of test. Uh, no, Considered by no, some no, no, not no, no. as Let me get the story out before you start putting it down. All right? So in any event, so they go and they contact the people at Yale uh, about this. They say, I see that you, you have this paper saliva. They say, yeah, absolutely. I, we think you really could tell uh, pretty much a uh, very high degree of accuracy. Maybe not the, the, the swab level, but very close to it, just by virtue of saliva. And they said, well, are you developing a diagnostic? And they go, no, we don't do that. Uh, we're research scientists. We don't do that. And they say, well, could you possibly do it? What if we gave you money? Could you do it? And they say, how much money? And <laughs> they work something out. They give them half a million dollars. And they're dealing with a guy, and you're saying to yourself, this must be the top guy at Yale. They're top, you know, they had to take him over from other. The guy who's in charge of this is a fellow named Nathan uh, Grubach, who is an assistant uh, professor of epidemiology at Yale. And he's leading a project with a woman named Ann Wiley, who's an associate research scientist in epidemiology at Yale. Not exactly the top brass, but they're the ones who did it. 
right? right? All credit to them. Well, sure enough, Nathan says, okay, I'll step out of my lane. I guess it's crazy times. Why can't I do a diagnostic? And believe it or not, he does. They develop a diagnostic, which is which uh, it can be done easily and cheaply. Saliva, the test costing between 4 and $15 with results available almost immediately with pretty much the same accuracy as a swab test as they, as they were able to demonstrate by giving NBA players over the past two months both tests simultaneously and getting the same results again and again and mm-hmm. again. Uh, and it was approved on Saturday, that's yesterday, by the FDA. All right. That's amazing. I, amazing for all the reasons that you said it's amazing. Yes. It, it's crazy. We needed the NBA to solve this problem. So yeah. there you go. All right. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> but when do we get it? Uh, probably soon. You think so? Yes. Although it won't cost 15 bucks. Uh, they said the 20. cost was that, but no, 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 the... it's not going to cost a lot. Yeah. Well, no, it's going to cost more than that, though. Uh, okay. But anyway, that's not the point. This all this testing is not terribly valuable unless it's the results and it's... are quick. Yeah, and the and, results uh, are instant. That's uh, that's what we need. Okay. So, all right, still fingers crossed in the vaccine. If only we were Russian. Well, that might work you too. But go ahead. Um, uh, all right. So, as usual, I have another story about uh, frescoes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this seems to be the year of uh, stories about murals and frescoes. And we're back in California again. And uh, more frescoes are about to be destroyed. Okay. Not for any uh, political controversy, really, but uh, because uh, they're in a building that's going to be torn down. And uh, so it, the panels being discussed are the history of medicine in California, completed in 1938 by Bernard Zakheim, a Polish-born muralist. Okay, so what makes this especially intriguing, we don't like to see any 1938 murals destroyed, okay? They may be beautiful, interesting, whatever. What makes this... A story is that uh, the panels tell the history of medicine in California, and they actually have some very interesting scenes, including one of showing Native Americans offering herbs to doctors and a trapper uh, helping to inoculate uh, someone with smallpox. Uh, vaccine, you know, back in the 19th century, and um, an actual depiction of Biddy Mason, a black nurse, depicted working along uh, with a white doctor treating a malaria patient. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, it's a, a fabulous portrayal, as opposed to we've been talking about all these negative portrayals of uh, Native Americans and uh, people of color in various murals. Here we have a great positive example, and uh, it's about to be destroyed. And, you know, um, the story gets even more interesting. First of all, let me tell you a little bit about the, the woman depicted, Biddy Mason, was a slave 
Okay, she was a slave. She was born in Mississippi or Georgia, not sure where. Um, she learns healing through her, you know, family, relatives, etc. Both, you know, uh, supposedly native indigenous methods and just traditional methods uh, that she learned. She's perhaps given as a wedding gift to a couple mm. who then becomes Mormon and travel and heads out to California. Mm. Ah, but here's the thing. Yeah. California is a free state. Right. So she becomes okay? free. She should be free. Right. But her owner is, um, has a plan to move all of his belongings to Texas. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nonetheless, she manages to take him to court yeah. and she gets her freedom. Mm-hmm. She becomes a one of the first, uh, she becomes incredibly very wealthy for a woman period, mm-hmm. especially for a black woman. She's a real estate entrepreneur. She's a philanthropist. She um, uh, is the founder of, uh, I guess, the first uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church in LA. Um, and then, you know, her family goes on to great things as well. Mm-hmm. And and she, you know, and she was a great healer. <laughs> so um, a remarkable woman. Um, anyway, you see um, San Francisco decides they're going to get rid of this building. It's an old building and uh, they are going to tear it down and they inform the descendants of the original artist that they have 90 days to, you know, do what they want to do about the art mm-hmm. or it's 90 days uh, notice maybe they weren't even saying they could do anything because uh, and uh, they're just flabbergasted mm-hmm. okay and uh, they figured out yeah maybe they can be moved it'll cost about a million bucks um, but who's got a million bucks to do that meanwhile the government finds out the GSA finds out right. and they feel because this was here's what I forgot to tell you this was a WPA sponsored uh, project in the 30s okay so the government feels they own the murals um and uh, they say you can't do anything with them mm-hmm. uh without our permission and the university says well we don't take that seriously okay mm-hmm. you don't own them. uh and uh, anyway this is not the first problem these murals have had yeah. okay they're painted in the 30s and uh the artist had actually worked with diego Rivera, mm-hmm. um great uh, mexican artist, uh, muralist, all right, um, who trained in Europe. And, uh, you know, there are communist sensibilities in this art to some extent, okay? All these artists, many of these artists, well, you know, you know Rivera was communist, sure. you know, he was buddies with Trotsky, etc. Right. And uh, anyway, um, that kind of, many artists were in the 30s and 40s, that goes out of style later, and the um, university has the murals covered up, wallpapered over, hmm. okay, because it's Cold War time, all right? So, so they're covered up for years, and then they're kind of rediscovered in the 60s, 70s. Uh, the guy who was part of the original, um, you know, financing and inspiration for the murals comes back and says, what the hell, you know, right. has them, you know, resurrected, and restored by the son of the original artist. So where, so where does it stand now? Do they resolve it? Um, it's very... 
I thought it was unclear, actually. I it's, maybe still, it's still unclear. Yeah. It's unclear. Um, let me see what... Uh, right now, the school has agreed to take bids. Yeah. Okay. Uh, hopefully less than $1.8 million for uh, removing and um, storing yeah. the... Uh, murals until something can be done. I mean, it will be a tragedy if they're just in storage somewhere. Or, as or the of course, they're, if they're the destroyed. Dis- yeah. What's interesting, Biddy Mason's uh, family, she's the they're most going crazy, prominent right. person. Well, they didn't even know she was in these. Oh. And, and so then they were informed. Yeah. Uh, but it would be, uh, and, and they agree, they, they say uh, it would be awful to just pack this stuff up and put it away. These should be available people to people to see. Can I, can I give you what the solution history? is? What? You know who can solve this problem? The NBA. If the NBA was told about this, I think they would come up with a plan and a program. I think, you know, I think there is, I think you're right in the sense there are solutions yeah. to things like this. But uh, it's just kind of funny um, that, uh, you know, um, here we have examples, here we have examples of, uh, you know, great portrayals right. of interesting and important history yeah. that's been forgotten, and we kind of ignore it. I have to say one one more thing. I know I'm no, running no, on no. on this, but uh, I, well, watch a little video talking about the murals yeah. that's, that was done about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the guy who's describing them says, you know, they're remarkable, they're wonderful, they're of, you know, they're of Sistine Chapel quality. And then he says, really? well, not quite... <laughs> Not quite, you know, Sistine Chapel aesthetics. Right, not and, Michelangelo. Yeah, but, but you know, I mean, that was a stupid thing to say anyway, because yes. it's an entirely different right. aesthetic. It's a different yes. sensibility. That's a good expression, um, though. It's, a, you know, to think that the only thing that's uh, sublime yeah. is European art, yeah. you know, and but it, it was it, silly. It, it, but, um, they, you know. It's it's like saying that a shoprite is a world class supermarket. It's it's the same idea. It's uh, he's trying to you know he thinks of the highest praise he can give and it's comparing it to the Sistine Chapel. Well, what I'm trying to say is the Sistine Chapel is not the sine qua non. I mean, it is for what it is. Right, you know? but it captures people's the, attention. You know, we're trained to see that as the I, I, epitome. But that's okay? a subtle. That's that subtext. doesn't mean that that's uh, subtext. The point is, he, when he says that. It just he's communicating to people it's a very high quality. That's all he's really trying to say. He's saying it's highly valuable. It's uh, so, something that should be paid attention to. So you know, interesting artwork. You know, I love that idea, that WPA idea of having you know financing art everywhere. It is, us. but it, but you have to kind of respect or at least pay attention to the idea. A lot of WPA stuff was painted on walls, and uh, hence the word murals. And when the buildings come down, you're going to have a problem. Uh, and right. that, that's really it, the root of the problem here. But it also underscores, yeah. as with the history of these murals, that art goes in and out of fashion. And yeah. what it shows goes in well, and out of fashion. Well, especially WPA. Yeah. And you just got to, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, every uh, generation looks at it differently. And uh, the right. idea... Is- I'm sure there are, lot, there are lots of things that have not been saved. Oh, have sure. not made it through. Oh, I'm sure. Um, I'm sure. Various regimes. Well, you know, you have that, that WPA Biddy stuff in Roosevelt, Mason. New Jersey. What a name. Who knows Biddy. how long that's going to be? Biddy. Biddy. Okay. I think her, some some places they say Bridget was her real name, but Biddy is kind of a fantastic name. Okay. 
All right, so there was an article here that was also kind of fantastic, and then I just couldn't believe it. It's so-called taxis that turn the meter off and power up. And what they really mean to say, although it's kind of a cute title, is that starting next year, there'll be uh, 20 or 30 uh, specially outfitted Jaguar taxis roaming the streets of Norway. They'll be electric. But when it comes time to charge them, they won't go to something that looks like a pump where the charger will be plugged in. They'll instead just go to a special taxi line and idle over a particular uh, space in the taxi line and receive wireless charging. They will sit there for 15 minutes. They will get a uh, charge. They'll take them 20% up. They'll be able to go another 30, 40, or 50 miles, and they'll be on their way. And that's the technology. Everything wireless about this is charging. great. Everything, Everything about this is great. And it's amazing. Uh, because you don't take up space right. with the, the charger mechanisms, right. right? It's underground, right. out of everyone's it's way. It's relatively okay. quick. It's, it's seamless. It's very quick. It's seamless. And what they point out is they're doing it for a lot of, uh, you know, like taxi cabs. Buses. And thinking of buses, delivery trucks, right. okay? And uh, the thing is, you can, it's not necessary to, like, totally recharge, at any point, right. you know, the idea that you could in a few minutes, um, you know, access another 50 miles on your schedule and then take another stop when you need to uh, is genius. Yeah. Um, so I, I, the other thing I found interesting about this was the idea of uh, how many different partners yeah. they're ending up with. They, you know, they're working on a variety of projects, well, there's a European... not just the, the Norwegian one. And, uh, you know, it's uh, collaborating with um, Germany and China. And, you know. Well, the guy who's spearheading the technology, it's a company called Momentum, and it's a fellow named Andrew Daga, who actually has a company located in Malvern, Pennsylvania. Yeah, like and, an hour from here. And he grew up in Brooklyn, went to Temple, went to Bucknell. And it's like came to work for NASA, but he's been working on a wireless uh, charging for a long time, in part because he worked with a fellow uh, at Bucknell who's since passed away, uh, who was apparently a legend in wireless technology for charging. And the way he became an expert was he did work in Antarctica. And it turns out that when you want to charge things in Antarctica, you can't really open the hood because it gets covered, it's covered <laughs> right. with snow. Right. So they say, we need something wireless because we don't want to open anything up. Right, right, right. <laughs> and right. that's what this, this technology was developed. In any event, it, there's one, this is not a downside, but think about this for a moment. When I read something like this, something sticks in my head, and that is, if the technology is changing so fast, are you reluctant as a purchaser of a car to buy something because it may not be the next thing. In other words, let's say I say to myself, wireless charging is the next thing. And yet, if I go to the market today, even though I'm interested in an electric car or a Tesla or something else like it, that's not the wireless technology. In two years, is that going to be surpassed by this? Well, I want to wait two years to buy a car that you, you can uh, charge in this wireless way, which is really much superior. And that kind of thinking would slow the adoption of you know, electric They're cars. not marketing this to you. <laughs> Mr. Flip Phone, okay? I, no, 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 just because I'm you, looking... You, you have it exactly No wrong. one imagines that you're going to be the and first to jump it's, on it's, any it's, it's technology It's because I'm looking train. to the future that I'm stymied here. That's why I'm using a uh, combustion engine. No, because I mean, the, um, the guy, Daga, uh, was saying he actually... Um, he has wireless uh, charges for his phone. He, he says, but it's He pointless. doesn't bother to use it. Yeah, he, does, just, he doesn't really it's care. Because it's not snowing. Well, it's not snowing, and also, you know, it doesn't take up any space, you know, et cetera. It's not like 
um, crowding the sidewalks. Well, I, and I the think there's more roads. to the point about changing I think technology. It would be fantastic. It would be, but I think the idea that it could overtake what exists today, and people might say, "Okay, when are we getting that?" Could have an effect, but I, I think we have to roll with the punches. Right, I think we'll things roll. are going to change, mm-hmm. and uh, you participate in the next change to help finance. Uh, the further development. This is my approach to, to date. But we <laughs> we're well aware of that. Yes, go ahead. Okay. What it's my turn. Definition of a museum, Denson. Yeah. Graphic Apparently, um, there's a big uh, brouhaha happening amongst the in the International Council of Museums, a Paris based nonprofit that aims to represent the interests of museums worldwide. Um, people were feeling um, that there was a need to revise the body's definition of what a museum uh, is. And, uh, you know, for years, let's see, um, are, the question is, are mu- museums just houses of collections and beautiful stops on the tourist trail or should they be engaging with the wider society? Okay, so the definition that they had has been around since the 1970s was straightforward. Museums are nonprofit institutions in the service of society. They exhibit the tangible and intangible heritage of humanity and its environment for the purposes of education, study, and enjoyment. Okay, uh, and for whatever reasons, this definition is used by UNESCO, cultural organization, you know, um, and by some governments. All right, the proposed uh, revision is museums are democratizing, inclusive, and polyphonic spaces for critical dialogue about past and futures, um, adding that museums work with and for diverse communities and aim to contribute to human dignity, social justice, global equality, and planetary well-being. All right. So this becomes a really sort of a political uh, kind of a social statement. Uh, So uh, people haven't come to any agreements and uh, there have been uh, resignations involved and there's no real answer so we don't know what a museum is that's okay most museums are closed um so we can't uh, utilize them anyway but uh, you know it's a little bit of a shame uh, you know trying to shoehorn uh, these institutions into sort of the well, political style of the moment let me give you a test for this because you're going to tell i'm going to ask you whether this is a museum all right so this fellow terry cannon passed away mm-hmm uh, died at the age of 66, uh, the headline in the Times, creator of an alternative to Cooperstown. Now, this is sort of a guy who comes from, uh, let's say, an odd background. His, uh, his dad uh, uh, published uh, something called uh, a newspaper, a uh, newsletter, if you will, for restoration of cars, of vehicles. And it was a specialist in restoring Studebaker's. His magazine was called Skinned Knuckles. How's that? Skinned Knuckles. This guy becomes his own publisher. He takes over Skin Knuckles, and he does a, a film journal, and he also has an, also an underground newspaper called, quote, Gosh. So he's a little out there. Well, he comes up with an alternative to Cooperstown. Now, Cooperstown, you know, is the baseball Why do we need museum. an alternative? We don't. Okay. We don't. 
No one says we do. But then, An alternative in what sense? Well, Terry Cannon says that he's not interested in what Cooperstown has, which is uh, has Babe Ruth's spat, Lou Gehrig's glove, that kind of stuff. Right. He's interested in stuff, he says, that has to do with stories, interesting stories of baseball, interesting characters of baseball. The people left behind, that's what gives baseball the character and the lure it otherwise wouldn't have. So he's dealing with oddball things because he's an oddball guy. And he puts together something that he calls... Uh, you really a reliquary. See a reliquary, which, which is a repository. This is the definition of holy relics. And every year, uh, he had, he he has. By the way, members people pay twenty five dollars a year to be members. He has a few hundred members every year. And uh, to as a parallel to the Baseball Hall of Fame induction, he has induction to the quote Shrine of the Eternals, and it includes people like uh, Doc Ellis, who is the uh, pitcher who pitched no hitter while on uh, LSD. All right. Uh, what? Hold it right there. Yes. A reliquary yeah. often holds like the bones of a saint. Yeah. Well, they like the skull of a saint. Word, Are you telling mine. me that he is, he's got a collection of the body parts of various famous no, he baseball have body players? Parts, but he has, and instead of Babe Ruth's listen, glove, don't make me go he's into got detail. Babe Ruth's left hand. No. He does, he does. Well, the closest I can come is that he managed to get Juan Marichal, the great Giants pitcher, autograph. Uh, some when he was a kid, and Man- Juan Marichal perspired on the program when he uh, signed it, and that's in the reliquary. So he, there's a little bit of that. He also has Eddie Goodell. Eddie Goodell was the midget that Dovek put up to pinch it once to try to draw a walk. Uh, he has Eddie Goodell's jockstrap. That's as close as we're going to get on this. All right? But the inductees include people like Jim Bouton, who you well know, an offbeat guy, Doc Ellis, of course. Marvin Miller, who was the union representative who, uh, for the baseball that saw, saw free agency through. And um, he, it, so this is pretty funny is, stuff. Is this he, a museum or not? Well, of course it's a museum. I mean, uh, um, but um, did, was he successful? No. Did anybody come to see this stuff? Where, uh, where was it located? Uh, I don't know where it was located. He, he said that, uh, who knows, it was in boxes. It's in, been various places, but here's what you're saying. It's where, in boxes. He, here's the thing, all right? Here's the thing. Uh, no, if it's he, in he made, boxes, it's no longer it, in boxes. It's, it's a hoard. Okay, it's okay. no longer in boxes. Now it's a museum. It's now housed at the Institute for Baseball Studies at Whittier College. Whittier College, you may remember, is, I believe, where uh, it was either Reagan or Nixon went to Whittier Nixon. College. Nixon. Nixon went to Whittier. So it's a real college. Yes. And they have his stuff there. <laughs> The reliquary is there at the Institute for Baseball Studies. So, again, a museum, you say yes? I guess it is. Okay. Well, that's all I needed. The question is, how is it going to socially interact? I don't know. It's up to Whittier. Again, Terry just passed away. It's their ball now, as we like to say. Uh, All right. So, I have a... We've been cooking up a storm. Right. This pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not the only ones. Um, and uh, this week in the Wall Street uh, Journal, there was a piece by B. Wilson uh, of Table Talk talking back to cookbooks. Quarantine cooking has taught us that recipes aren't exact blueprints, but the beginning of a conversation between writer and cook. And, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, that's, I guess, really true. 
I would think that happens all the time. But her point is that uh, because of the pandemic, we're we're often in a situation where we're trying to make a recipe, and you can't necessarily get a hold well, that's of her point. all the that, things right. that the recipe calls for. Right. Okay, so you improvise. You make it better. Right. Um, I mean, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Right. Um, I... Again, I think this always happens, doesn't it? Yeah, don't, I think. Don't well, you, well, she don't you eventually say to yourself, said that. I'm not willing to really, right. you know, that. go out and do that. Um, but a- apparently, she feels that um, uh, the uh, quarantine situation right. has well, uh, encouraged us even more to kind of take but, our own liberties. That right. cookbooks are just the start of a conversation. Well, she, that they are interactive. She talks about it. She is an old cookbook that she talks about in particular. In which someone's making notes in the cookbook. Right. Uh, and then she loves the notes. The notes might say, this recipe is no good. The notes might say, do this differently. The notes might underscore something, make sure you have a lot of this, put even more, whatever it right, is. Right, right. But it's not just that. It's, to, you know, um, what those notes reveal about people. Yeah. Uh, even more than what it reveals about the recipes. And she does quote uh, a woman, uh, Barbara Ketchum Wheaton who uh, pulls out her old uh, Joy of Cooking cookbook once in a while to flip through. And uh, she describes that book uh, as having so many food stains, it could probably be boiled and served as soup. Yeah, well... Um, And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that's true. I mean, whenever... I remember years ago, there was some story about, um, you know, like a babysitter or somebody stepping in to cook dinner uh, for a family mm-hmm. and, uh, and you know, put a meal on the table that was like all their favorite dishes. And how did she do that? She just opened up the cookbooks in the house. Yeah. The, the, the mother or whoever wasn't around opened up the cookbooks in the house, picked the recipes with the most uh, stains on them. <laughs> That's right. And, That's uh, good. And uh, used them. So, yeah, uh, there's definitely... Um, Cooking is very interactive now, of course, because many times, uh, actually, it's not just the cookbooks. Uh, you get your recipes from the internet and you have all these comments hmm. uh, people post after the recipe. So uh, Valuable insight. Yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes it leads you astray. Yeah. Well, uh, all right. Uh, so there was uh, an article. We don't want to ignore the news. Kamala Harris is the vice presidential nominee. She is the so-called running mate for Joe Biden. And the journal had an article about where the term running mate comes from. Uh, and it turns out that a lot of uh, the phrases that we use when we talk about political competitions come from horse racing. Uh, Other competitions. Yes. Well, no, horse racing in particular. It's well, a, horse racing is a competition. Yes, but that's the one with the most uh, effect, apparently. I mean, to this day, we speak of candidates running as horses run for office in races without giving much thought. Dark horse is clearly a reference to horse racing. Front runner, horse racing. Upset is a horse racing term. And so too, apparently, is the phrase running mate. And it means something specific, which I was not aware of. It turns out that in uh, 1858, they developed a way of, a new way of harness racing in which you would have two horses running together. You're familiar harness racing. There's a uh, so-called jockey or the harness racer is in a sulky behind the horse. Well, here you would have two horses uh, lined up together, one in front of the other, all connected to the sulky behind them. And they were, quote, running mates. And in particular, you would have a lead horse who was the star and the second horse 
uh, who was called the running mate. That's where the term actually comes from. And apparently it became such a popular uh, way of racing that there's a very well-known print by Curry or Knives that was on in 1867 or something like that, showing this kind of race between a horse and a running mate. Now I'm looking at this and I'm saying, how could it be that you have a front runner that's a great horse and a, and a, uh, the horse behind him is kind of secondary? Doesn't the secondary horse have to keep up with a front runner? How can they, they can't, they have to have the same level of skill. Well, that's not explained. I don't have the explanation for that, but the term running mate comes from that racing uh, approach. There you go. Got it. All right. Keep that in mind. Keep that image in mind. All right. So you had something. Uh, oh, yeah. About animals? We don't have a dog. <laughs> but if no. we did, yeah. you might want to talk to it or have your dog talk to you. I guess that's it. We all talk to animals. But you want the, the dog to talk People back? want their dogs to talk to them. I think they'd be disappointed. And so um, there's a tired of talking with the people in your family. Try the dog. And uh, so there's an article in the Wall Street Journal about people teaching their dogs to talk. Right? There are these things that you can buy on Amazon. Buttons. Yeah. Okay? They're, they're rather large size buttons. Mm -hmm. And they have, you can record something on each button. Okay. So you could record like, you know, um, outside, uh, go out, or you could record treat. Or you could go record water. And supposedly you can teach your dog to stomp on the one when they want those things. All right. And people see that as their dogs talking to them. Really? Okay. People have done it with cats as well. And uh, so, it, I mean, it's not too much different from, you know, teaching a dog just randomly ring a bell when it wants to go out or something. Mm -hmm. It's this kind of training has been around uh, forever. And they have one expert here, uh, Carlos Siracusa, a veterinarian specialist, says people can do it. It's fun. I think it's much more important from the dog welfare standpoint that we make an effort to understand the dog's language. Okay. It might be easier just to read the pet's body language to understand them. But, uh, you know, um, this is available. And, you know, people are saying that uh, um, their animals, even some of them are even able to, you know, like sort of put together sentences. Yeah. Okay. Uh. <laughs> Although one lady reported that uh, she seemed to have pushed her cat too hard and the cat seemed to have a total... Uh, meltdown and, really? uh, that sounds and uh, refused to deal with the buttons at all at a certain really? point. So cat, watch out for the that. cat went into silent mode after that? Didn't say anything for weeks? I don't know. She just jumped on all the buttons yeah. <laughs> at once. Those cats are finicky. I think your dogs are better bet. All right. So the last story we have is this. This, I think, is going to resonate with you. Uh, so the Times uh, like you know, has written a lot of articles. And this person in particular, Shira Ovid, has written a lot of articles according to herself. Uh, dumping on tech, dumping on tech companies, showing how tech companies could potentially ruin our lives. And she felt that in order to atone to that, for that, uh, to some degree, she invited readers to write letters about the tech they love. Because uh, she had to recognize and acknowledge, in fact, tech has a lot of positives too, and a lot of people love certain tech. And she got what you'd expect. Uh, she published a lot of, you know, not a lot, certain of the letters. One saying, that's nothing like GPS, Spotify changed my life, Pokemon Go is something I depend on all the time, uh, just the, you know, the, the phone, all kinds, the kind of answers that you 
would see. There's a lot to, to like in terms of technology. And she published these along reluctantly with the following letter. Dear New York Times, quote, My favorite tech invention, the thermos. You put in something hot and it stays hot. You put in something cold and it stays cold. But how does it know? From Tom Schroeder in San Diego. Right. I know that you have a big believer in How that. do it know? How do it know? How do it know? Perhaps one of Ms. Thank you, Jared favorite lines. And, and the woman who wrote the article said, uh, you know something? Um, uh, one reader waxed poetic about the thermos, which is not what I had in mind, but I will allow it because a favorite Japanese travel mug is my favorite possession. <laughs> All right, so that's all we have this week. A classic is a classic. Yes, with Tabs and Dan, read the paper. So don't be afraid to buy a thermos. I will. will. They'll be around. As long as it's rechargeable, I'm I'm on it. They probably are, okay? And Tamsin Granger uh, with Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. We'll be back next week. Thanks.